Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today I talked to Professor Petra Meyer about her research paper, Alcohol Policy and Gender, a modelling study estimating gender-specific effects of alcohol pricing. Professor Meyer talks about differences in consumer reactions to changes in price, about using computer modelling to estimate long-term effects of alcohol policies, and about how these effects can differ according to gender. This interview is recorded online on the 8th of March 2021. We hope you enjoy. Um, hello, uh, Petra. Hello, Rob. Um, so uh, your article focus, your article used computer modelling to estimate how the impact of alcohol policies might differ according to gender. Uh, can you summarise the differences that you found? OK, yes, uh, let me try. Um, we've found that alcohol pricing policies appear to be much more effective at reducing consumption and harm for men than women. Um, so what we did, we modelled the effects of a 10% duty increase and minimum unit prices of 50p and 70p per UK unit. And what we found that each of those three policies was estimated to lead to larger reductions in consumption and also hospital admissions uh, among men than women. And at full effect, that is once consumption changes have worked their way through to all the health outcomes, a 50p minimum unit price, which is what Scotland introduced, uh, it was expected to lead to a sevenfold larger reduction in drinking and a three times larger reduction in hospital admissions for men than for women. So quite sizable effects here. Um, if we look at the inequalities impact, uh, minimum unit pricing has a much bigger impact on the consumption of drinkers in more deprived groups. Um, and again, this gradient is much clearer for men than women. Um, I probably should also add that policies have got a much bigger effect on the drinking of heavier drinkers than moderate drinkers, especially minimum unit pricing. Um, tax increases have got sort of effects are a bit more evenly spread out across drinker groups. Um, and finally, sort of turning to uh, spending effects uh, compared to men instead of consumption reductions, it's really important to know that women see much bigger increases in their annual spending per, uh, for, for the alcohol. And that's the case for all pricing policies, particularly um, the case for um, uh, higher minimum unit price. OK, um, and can you can you explain or were you able to um um, pick apart some of the reasons for these differences in, in the impact of those policies? Yeah, I, th- I think we show that the difference in the policy effects are driven by quite a complex interplay of gender differences in consumption, in purchasing patterns and risk of harm. So, for example, on average, men drink twice as much as, uh, alcohol per year compared to women. Um, they're also much more likely to drink in pubs, clubs and restaurants, and they drink a lot more beer and cider which have got quite low duty rates and are generally cheaper per unit of alcohol than, say, wine or spirits, which women prefer. On the other hand, women drink less overall, uh, drink three quarters of their alcohol at home, and wine is by far the most popular drink uh, amongst the female drinkers. And because they drink so much more and more in pubs and bars, men spend about twice as much on their alcohol in total per year. And uh, a, a, a what we also found is that a greater proportion of women's units are cheap units. So whilst they drink less and uh, uh, they drink more in um, you know, supermarket alcohol and 
those units would be affected much more by minimum unit pricing. So initially we thought, oh, maybe women's drinking is going to reduce by much more uh, because they drink more cheap units, but that's not what we found. Um, that's mainly the case because different types of beverages also have different price elasticities. That is that consumers react differently to price rises. So a 10p price rise in pop or beer isn't, uh, doesn't lead to the same consumption effect as 10, uh, a 10p price rise in the same amount of supermarket wine, for example. So price rises in supermarket wine in particular, which women uh, tend to buy so much of, does not produce big consumption changes. Um, uh, people just continue buying at higher higher prices. And then finally, the, the, the final big of, uh, bit of the jigsaw is that women have different risk of harm from alcohol. So at low level of drink, uh, low levels of drinking, it's quite similar. But at higher levels of drinking, when women drink heavily, their risk of health harm is much much higher than for men drinking at the same level. Uh, so in England, there are two and a half times as many hospital admissions due to alcohol consumption uh, among men than women. But in women, those hospital admissions are completely concentrated in the heaviest drinkers. So pretty much um, 90% or so of all hospital admissions for women are just from the very heaviest drinkers. So massive gender differences wherever you look and um, it's the interplay between all those different factors that can explain the differences in policy effects. Okay, I, I think it's really interesting because you talked also about the impact, um, the financial impact. So there was a larger financial impact for women, but less of a reduction in, in alcohol consumption and in the harms from alcohol. So it's kind of almost least effective and most costly for women compared with men. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, um, I mean, for, for us, it was surprising just how little research had been done on gender effects uh, in, in uh, alcohol policies per se, and uh, very little on, on pricing policies in particular, given that we know that men and women drink quite differently and buy different things. Um, I guess that uh, the findings are really important because policymakers want to avoid deepening health inequalities. Um, and only if policymakers know that pricing policies are likely to have greater effects uh, on men than women, then they can decide whether that's desirable. And on the one hand, one might argue that policies are quite well targeted because the rates of alcohol-related harm are so much higher in men than women. So, you know, it, it, arguably it affects the people that you would want to affect. But as you say, on the other hand, we show that uh, women pay a much higher financial price for alcohol pricing policies compared to men. Um, and see relatively less benefit um, from a public health perspective, at least, um, which has important implications maybe for household budgets, um, particularly when we think about heavy drinkers uh, in, in, amongst the women. Um, and obviously making policies is, is enormously complicated, not just in the alcohol field, um, and involves trade-offs uh, between competing priorities. But our stance there is that it's always better to know uh, about these trade-offs and make them explicit and then you can consider as a policymaker what you make of those differential impacts and you may want to consider what other policies might form part of a more comprehensive alcohol strategy. Um, so I mean on, on that subject are there good evidence-based policies uh, or what good evidence-based policies might someone who wanted to address heavy drinking among women uh, what, what kind of policies might be available? Um, I mean, we, we know that treatment is very effective 
uh, for men and and for women, uh, and uh, that there are differential access rates again for for women who uh, are less likely or seem less likely to to access treatment. But we know that once they are in treatment, uh, it it works very well. So um, they, those kind of uh, policies, uh, you, you could see how can you make services more attractive for women. Obviously, you could uh, could could look at uh, you know the different different beverages and tax them different or introduce different minimum unit prices uh, depending on on the types of beverage um, uh, might might lead to some complex switching effects and so on so not saying that this is necessarily the best thing I think on, on the whole we just don't know because there hasn't been a huge uh, focus on gender um, in in alcohol policy research and I guess there is uh, quite a bit more work to do before we really know um, you know what what a comprehensive strategy with all different uh, policies aligned to have, you know, so to target the different groups of people effectively that you would want to be included and not penalise people you, you don't want to, to penalise or not, uh, you know, have undue effects on one group and not on others. Uh, thank you. Um, I think I, one of the, um, uh, my internet connection is unstable, so I'm probably about to drop out. Um, but one of the, um, one of the, one of the things I found fascinating about your research was that your ability to um, use information about a suggested uh, policy change, in this case, um, alcohol pricing, that you were then able to map on people's uh, decisions and behaviours around alcohol purchase, alcohol consumption, that you were then able to predict um, the health outcomes looking kind of up to 20 years in, in the future when um, all of the effect of those decisions had, um, had played out. And you did this using um, uh, computer modelling uh, called SAPM, or yes, SAPM, the Sheffield Alcohol Policy Model. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, so uh, SAPM comprises uh, an individual-based uh, model, so an econometric uh, econometric model, basically that estimates how price changes affect individual-level alcohol consumption, and then a cohort-based epidemiological component um, that estimates how consumption changes then would affect morbidity, mortality and economic costs associated with 45 different alcohol-related conditions. Um, so basically two parts of the model. One asks what happens to consumption when prices change. The other asks uh, what happens to harm when consumption changes. And you glue the two together and then you've got something that uh, tells you, you know, how price changes work their way through to harm over a period of uh, over 20 years. And we have, you know, we estimate the, the immediate effects and we estimate also the sort of longer term effects. It's important to know you, you mentioned the word prediction and it's not really a uh, sort of a crystal ball type um, model which, which uh, predicts what happens exactly in, in 20 years time. It's a uh, model that tells you what would happen all else being equal. So it estimates, you know, compared to policy X, policy Y has twice as, uh, as big an effect if all else stayed equal. Um, because we, you know, we know there are going to be uh, plenty of alcohol policies in, in the next 20 years. There's all sorts of other societal shifts. So, you know, the predictive modeling is, is, is a different kettle of fish altogether. So this is just trying to appraise the relative value of different policy options and relative effects between uh, different groups of drinkers, say, or, you know, between different costs to the NHS versus uh, other other costs that might um, might might uh, affect. Yeah. I mean, just because just we don't know what's going to happen in 20 years time shouldn't stop us 
working out the long-term effects of policies that, that are in place now. I mean, we can say something about longer-term effects in terms of, you know, we know um, uh, risk functions, uh, we know something about the dynamics of, you know, say, uh, how consumption changes um, affect cancer rates versus uh, road traffic accidents. And you know that for road traffic accidents, uh, if you reduce consumption, your risk immediately drops down versus, uh, versus you know, at the population level. Uh, over, for, for cancer rates, uh, you know, it takes quite a few years to reach full effect. You know, you'll start to have some effect immediately, but it accrues over a much longer period of time. And that's the case for most uh, chronic conditions. So, you know, there, there are good literature-based evidence which we can uh, take account of and use in our modelling to, um, you know, almost have a temporal profile of effects across those 45 conditions and sum it all up. And then we know, you know, what you'd expect in terms of your hospital admissions from alcohol in year one versus uh, year 10 versus year 20. Um, I mean, are there um, are there any other areas in which you've used this kind of modelling? I mean, what what other kinds of advantages are there for for addiction research in particular? Um, I mean, the the, the advantage of uh, we we often get asked, you know, if if you know, can't you use just use a survey or can't you just use a single data source? And the kind of questions we uh, try to answer are just not amenable to to that. You know, I mean, you can't just you know go to the health survey for England and ask it. You know, what might happen to consumption and what might happen to harm and what might happen to prices and what do people spend their money on and how do the you know how does does that affect NHS costs? Um, I mean, this kind of computer model comes into its own where you need to draw on an awful lot of different data sources. Um, some of which are population surveys, some of them are mortality and morbidity rates. And, you know, we go to the ONS and we go to NHS data and we go to market research data and we go to the literature to try and find the underlying data and the effect estimates that help us model through from individual level consumption from something like the Health Survey for England or the Living Cost and Food Survey, which tells us something about what people buy and for what amount of money. And then, you know, start to estimate um, what a policy uh, effect could be on lots of different products and lots of different types of consumers. Um, and are there, I mean, are there any disadvantages to using um, uh, computational models in this way? Are there any kind of frustrations to this particular type of method? I mean, the models are always uh, going to be as good as the underlying data. Um, so you quickly run into trouble if you... Uh, try to build quite complicated models in countries where such data doesn't exist. The UK is very fortunate in having, um, you know, relatively good data and all the things that we're we're interested in. Um, big uncertainties remain. I mean, there are many things that we, uh, you know, don't don't know uh, perfectly. Um, uncertainties is is a part of the model and how you quantify them. Usually, what we do is. You know, we, we take alternative plausible assumptions and see whether they would change the modelled results um, by a significant amount or whether they would even lead us to make different conclusions. Um, on the whole, what we find is that, you know, sort of if you use different estimates, it tends to change the, uh, the numbers a little bit, but the direction of the effect tends to be the same. Um, I mean, there, there aren't really uh, many alternative uh, alternatives to policy appraisal methods. They're very well established. Um, governments use them. There's, you know, sort of uh, uh, lots of guidance on how to do it properly. And, um, you know, on, on the whole, 
um, it's a it's a successful method for trying to work out uh, you know uh, what what options would be more likely to lead to the desired um, results. That's great. Thank you ever so much for your time, Professor Petra Meyer.